Welcome to Armchair Justice, the podcast where we take a shallow dive into the world of the Supreme Court. This is the legal podcast for people who didn't study Latin in college. I'm your host, James Abdorf. I'm not a lawyer, but my co-hosts, Micah Chetta and John Gardner, are. Before we begin, I want to remind you that this is an educational podcast only. We are only offering our opinion and not legal advice. The individual facts of each case differ dramatically and cannot be covered in a short-form podcast. If you think something we say is relevant to your legal situation, you should seek the advice of a licensed attorney. With that out of the way, it is time to tell you our opinions, our full opinions, and nothing but our opinions. Thank you for joining us again on this podcast, Armchair Justice. We are happy that you could join us. Um, Today's discussion is going to be a lot less uh, of a downer than last week. We are talking about our good old friend standing. Um, Standing in the case of Uze Bunum versus Prochesky. In this case, Chike Uze Bunum was a Christian at a college, a state-run college in Georgia. He attempted to share the gospel with his fellow uh, college students, uh, was told that he had to do it in a free speech zone, which was some odd one, two percent of campus. When he went to that free speech zone, someone complained which the college took as uh, him being harassment or harassing or being disruptive and so asked him to stop. He, with the help of the Alliance Defending Freedom, sued and very quickly the uh, college realized that their uh, rule, their really law, ran afoul of the Constitution. So they changed it and they said, um, you know, you, you can now do a, you can now minister on campus as much as you wish. Uh, the problem is that Chike only asked for nominal damages. Nominal damages being damages in name only, um, usually used to get you in the door to a court when you really don't want money. What you want is a court ruling, and he asked for nominal damages of one dollar. Um, the uh, defendants actually agreed to pay the one dollar, um, but he he did not want that. It's now four years later. He has gotten all the way to the Supreme Court, and the issue before the Supreme Court was whether nominal damages of one dollar constitutes enough of a harm to be heard in front of the Supreme Court, or whether the entire case was at all muted when the uh, college changed the rule and allowed for the free speech. Um, and a, a lot of the issue here was this idea between actual damages and nominal damages. So, uh, Micah, I'm going to bring you in here and just ask you kind of if you could run down what those two are and, and how they differ. Sure. Um... Before we get there, let's start off real quick, like I like to do with the Constitution. So where are we getting this case from? We're getting this case from the First Amendment. And the First Amendment key aspect says uh, you can't abridge the freedom of speech. And why is this gentleman able to sue at Georgia Gwinnett College? Because Georgia Gwinnett College, like you said, James, is a public university. Thus, it is funded by government tax dollars. And it is 
limited from being able to violate your freedom of speech, which makes you wonder how in the world do they get away with free speech zones? And what was amazing about the free speech zone is he had to get a permit. He had to reserve the spot and he had to be in a certain time zone at, at the place at a certain time. It was ridiculous. And then he gets there and then someone complains. Um, it, it really is astonishing just how, how limiting these public universities of open thought and, and willingness to hear every other idea except um, this Christian worldview, apparently. Uh, it, it really is astounding. So where you get this question of nominal damages and um, actual damages or compensatory damages. So those, there are three types of damages, and John can correct me if I'm wrong here, but nominal damages are, are not really saying, are not really to recover for how you've been injured. They're merely a statement that the other individual um, was wrong, and they're normally about a dollar, maybe a little more. And generally where you see this is with trespassing. A lot of times when a person will trespass across your land, you'll sue them. And the purpose is really to determine where the boundary line of the land is. And then you might sue them for $1. One of the things in law school that uh, I was told was that oftentimes a lot of wealthy people like to do trespassing cases. It's just a lot of fun for them to be able to sue their neighbors on those points. But generally it's dealing with uh, a limited, a small amount of, of money and merely trying to make a point overall. The second aspect of actual damages is to recover what you've been injured. Uh, and uh, compensate, actual and compensatory damages is to get back what you got, um, what, you were to, uh, what you were deprived of. And then there's a third type of damages called punitive damages. And punitive damages generally has an idea of you've harmed society overall, and um, you have to pay a little extra. Along with these three types of damages are normally considerations for attorney fees. And with attorney fees, generally when someone sues, um, they, they, to be able to present a, a suit, they normally ask the court to have the other side pay for their attorney fees. Why is that? Because a lot of people wouldn't be able to sue unless they had the funding to be able to do it from the other side, especially if the other side is wrong and they're not willing to settle. And then sometimes when you have a specific case, uh, or a statutory violation, there are called statutory damages. And that's where within the statute, uh, the legislature said, hey, you know, this violation is egregious. We will allow you to be able to sue and get a certain amount of money for these kind of violations. Sometimes it's to limit the type of that amount of money you will get. Other times it is to show that uh, this violation was problematic and we want you to be able to recover uh, money here. Uh, the reason we talk about it in money terms, it's not always in money terms, but a lot of times it is, is because that is normally the only type of remedy that we can provide to people that can actually generally provide uh, redress to the issue. So hopefully that was uh, clear enough, but for our case here, it's dealing with nominal, actual slash compensatory damages and uh, we'll get into why that is important with the standing issue, but I'll turn it back to you, James. And I will say, James, one thing is, is really important when, when you think of the mootness issue, I guess you can confuse it with muting issues at times too, but uh, when you consider the mootness issue, it is the idea of, um, is this case over with? And has this case already been settled? 
And what we are really hanging our hat on with this issue is the question of do damages allow the case to continue? Which is a really interesting concept because it really comes to the point of if I just say that I've been injured, will my case always be alive? And I know we'll get into that a little bit more, but I kind of want to make that point just to make sure listeners were understanding where we were going with this. Yeah, and I know um, with um, we talked earlier about in the in the Abrams case about um, harms. That's where we it's the first case we covered, right? And the Supreme Court came back and said that uh, the mere, you know, you have to prove that you were actually trying to do something and were denied. In this case, trying to become a judge and denied, not just merely wanted to. Um, anyway, so, so we have this idea of harms and the idea is that, Hey, can harms, harms are what I want. Harms are things I bring up to in front of the court, right? I say, judge, the problem is X, Y, Z. And, um, the court is looking, I'm asking the court to find a solution and, this solution may be these damages, these nominal damages have traditionally been kind of a way to, to say to the court, I have suffered some sort of harm here. Um, and John, I want to bring you in here and just discuss like what's kind of the, the opposing viewpoint here. What was Georgia arguing why they shouldn't have to, why the Supreme Court shouldn't answer this particular issue? Yeah, so Georgia's position was that they fixed the problem, uh, that the students brought this uh, request for injunctive relief and declaratory judgment in an effort to keep the school from enforcing this policy that they found re uh, restricted their freedom of speech. And the school's position is, yeah, we changed it. As a result of this, you know, uh, litigation, the complaint that was filed, they went ahead and and changed the policy, and because of that, uh, there's no longer a case or controversy that the Supreme Court uh, could entertain. But why does nominal damages, since you know we've used them for so for so long, why does that not count as a um, as a harm, why, why can't I say, I still have money on the table, I still want my dollar. Um, what was their argument against against that? Well, here, uh, the, the dollar in a sense is just to, as and, and I think the examples that Micah pointed out are, are really good in regards to trespass. Uh, people bring these issues of trespass to the court because they want the court to have a judgment which says they're, they're right. And therefore they can use that judgment moving forward uh, to help protect that right that has been established by the court. Um, when somebody asks for an injunctive relief or a declaratory judgment, that's what they're doing. Uh, and here the, the school's position is that they responded to uh, the uh, their request and uh, acted appropriately. And so by doing so, they have, in essence, vindicated or recognized that right. Now, obviously, for uh, the students, this seems 
to fall short because it's not an official opinion by a court, uh, even though it is the outcome that they themselves would have sought. So let's go to the, the idea of, of harms versus actual damages or nominal damage versus actual damage. What, what, type of no, what type of actual damages could the students here claim? Because, I mean, they weren't being paid to evangelize or this Chike was not being paid to evangelize. Um, it wasn't like he really suffered any harm outside of the chilling effect on his free speech, his ability to to proselytize on campus, um, what would be your, you know, what, what other things could he have asked for instead of anomal damages of $1? What could he, or injunctive relief, what other type of damage could he, could he have brought forth? I think in terms of actual damages, um, and here's just some sort of creative law- lawyering, as I would call it, uh, would be the fact he was passing out leaflets. Uh, so there had to have been some cost in printing the leaflets. leaflets. Uh, even if it's just a couple of bucks or things like this, this would be money that he would otherwise be out. Um, there probably was costs associated with uh, uh, transport to the school, whether it be gas that he spent, um, things like that, or one could point to opportunity costs lost in volunteering his time to pursue this activity. So if he had a part-time gig while he was a student as a tutor or maybe at the Chick-fil-A near near campus and was not otherwise taking a shift because he wanted to pursue what he recognized as his First Amendment right to evangelize, as he should, um, these sorts of things would be actual damages that he would have occur- incurred. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the other side, from my point of view, and Mike, I'll, I'll let you hop in on this, but like, okay, so instead of lo- losing a dollar, he now claims 30 bucks, right? Why is that much different? Why does the Supreme Court care? to hear a case about $30. Um, and I know, Micah, you wanted to say something. So um, <laughs> I'll let both of you guys jump in here. Yeah, and I, I think you just hit the case on the uh, in full force here, James, is why does this matter, right? I mean, so had he charged $1 actual damages as opposed to nominal damages, would his First Amendment right have been any less violated? You know, there seems to be this uh, hopping around this issue of considering, all right, well, when it's, it seems to be a loss of a right based off a of technicality, right? Uh, and, you know, what we're seeing here is you can say, well, the school, and John rightly pointed out, yeah, the school changed its behavior. But what did the student have to go through? He had to go through two years of a legal process of having to go through depositions of having to go reach out to ADF or his legal counsel. And he had to go through this whole process. How many students are willing to do that to uphold their free speech? And all because you might not have argued uh, 
you know, actual damages versus nominal damages. I mean, it seems almost a little ridiculous. And of course, I'm emphasizing this. Um, and I understand there are intricacies here that are important. And I'll quickly say something about the other position. But um, when you look at this, you wonder, why are we focusing on such a technicality when the First Amendment guarantees your right to free speech? I mean, come on, should we should we lose our free speech over that? But then on the other side, what I think Georgia pointed out uh, so rightly is that if you get rid of this rule, if you get rid of this or you allow for this small of damages, then can anyone argue, hey, we have damages. And then after the issues no longer existing, um, they can still go to the Supreme Court on the topic. And I know that may be a little hard to conceive uh, why that is important, but imagine your caseload suddenly tripling in size because issues that have, <clears throat> issues have that have already been decided uh, through time are still alive because someone happened to argue one dollar nominal damages, and that's what the court is having to balance here: is how many cases will we be getting that should have just died and should no longer be around because we are amending this rule. Um, so yeah, I think those are two considerations. You have to consider the aspect of we're losing a First Amendment right potentially, or at least not having it vindicated. And then on the other side, the flip side, uh, we may be opening the floodgates to have hundreds of cases coming to the Supreme Court where there's no real issue anymore. But, um, you know, I understand um, that idea of filtering out certain cases um it's kind of like a if you're a hr department right you know you get thousands of resumes no one has time to look at all the resumes so you need you know certain uh just sure uh certain ways of looking at it to just determine i'm not you consider this candidate right so you look at spelling you look at presentation those things that might not actually have any bearing on the, the particular job you're at, but yeah, there are easy ways to disqualify people who do not put the time in or consideration into your, your load. My question, though, would be, couldn't the Supreme Court just say, or courts just say, you know, uh, I see your case that you're bringing forth, um, you know, uh, case where you're suing your neighbor because the neighbor's dog is annoying and barks in the middle of the night it's now been seven years and the dog died you know and it's sad we don't like dogs dying but the dog died right and you're like i still want my dollar right couldn't the supreme court just say i'm not listening to that that is so out of the pale like so unimportant it does not deserve the attention of this court couldn't they institute some sort of other informal or formal filtering system to say uh your one dollar damage suit doesn't doesn't rise maybe they say only if you're claiming uh, abridgment of constitutional right or something of that nature so could they could they make that couldn't they just say yes to chike um, and then just also apply some other form of filter to avoid the tripling of their caseload. 
I I think the concern is is that uh, you know we d- we don't necessarily want the Supreme Court to uh, freewheel a new legal doctrine, right? I think here the the correct you know we, ha- we there's a distinction that we have to draw between standing and mootness. You have standing, which is like the original authority of the parties to go before the court. And then you have mootness, which is the persistence of that standing throughout the time that it's being heard in front of the court. And so here, the parties asked for the school to stop violating their First Amendment rights. And they went to the court and they said, court, help us figure out whether or not this school is violating our rights. And the school threw their hands up and went, yeah, we're wrong. And I think in some sense, there's an interest in avoiding protracted litigation over kind of small issues like you're pointing out where, you know, one person says, well, my, you know, my First Amendment right was violated. They allege $1 and then can, you know, the, school or their employer or the government, you know, changes the policy and then they hold them in court for another two or three years, you know, considering, you know, litigation on the issue. And uh, as much as, I mean, I agree with the students here and they are certainly, you know, well within their right to do so. The, I personally am excited by a, a, a legal system that can come to quick conclusions. And I think that's what we have here. And the issue is that the separate issue in my mind is the extent to which this can deter other schools from engaging in the same behavior. And I think that's more of a policy issue that the court doesn't need to decide, but, you know, I'm happy to, you know, Hear, hear what Micah has to say on that. I, I just want to ask you, John, what's to stop Georgia Gwinnett College from reinstituting all this again? And then these students have to go to court all over again. Well, and so there we have a different kind of damage that are, uh, that would come into play, which would be punitive damages. And because I think then you would have an instance of uh, evidence of an institution that is intentionally maneuvering the legal system uh, to benefit themselves. And if they do that, we have the recourse already set in, in the court to do that. And not only would you know the petitioners get the $5 or $1 for nominal dan- damages, but then the Supreme Court could really smack them with a big fine. So... I mean, it's, I think it was um, Justice Alito in one of the previous cases. He said it is widely recognized that a claim for nominal damages uh, prevents mootness from from working here, um, the doctrine of mootness. So it's interesting that there seems to be case law precedent for mootness to not apply when there is at least some type of damages. And what you're saying is, well, next time they can do punitive damages. But yet for the first dan- the first instance, those harms haven't been vindicated um, because although the school said they won't do the actions, their harm is still existent, right? So 
uh, Chike for the two times he tried to speak. Uh, he was injured both of those times. And now he will never get redress from that because the court dismissed the case. And you say, well, a dollar isn't enough redress. Well, for Chike, it apparently is. A dollar is sufficient redress for him. And my question then comes down to what are we, why, why should we have to make him argue punitive damages a second round instead of letting him go forward with this seemingly on decently good case law, or at least one of the justices thinks he has good case law, um, and pursuing his claim? Because overall, if we don't, he's got two injuries of where he was prohibited from speaking and it will never be addressed. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you that he was injured, and, but I, I, I think the, the issue here comes down to the type of damage again. And, you know, what, how important that distinction is now. I think in a case like this, it seems like a trivial distinction because the sort of actual damages that we could come up for this fella, Chica, is tough. He's a student. There's not a lot of money in the table. It's not like he spent a whole bunch you know, of uh, time and effort. Well, maybe, I'm certainly he, he studied his Bible a lot to make sure he was ready to evangelize. I know that. Because I saw that video by ADF, and he is one sharp fellow. But I think that fact, which is unique to this case, doesn't necessarily make the distinction between the damages irrelevant for other cases going forward. And to Alito's point about the case law, well, this is what's kind of hotly debated is that there's a split right in, in many of the circuits in the States uh, where, you know, some circuits say that nominal damages kind of void the mo the mootness issue and others say that it doesn't, or they haven't really made a decision one way or the other, which is why the courts consider in the case. So um Yeah, and I, I just wanted to bring out, James, real quick. Um, what's amazing about this case is the diversity of positions on it. Um, so there is, in the Amakai, I'm going to butcher that name again, in the Amicus briefs that were submitted, so basically Friends of the Court briefs, you have entities or groups uh, that can side with a position um, and... <laughs> This issue has made strange bedfellows, right? It's not, it, it, it has the ADF and the ACLU and what was it? The humanities, humanistic something organization, uh, liberal organization. It, it, it has a Christian legal society, uh, uh, even um, child evangelism and fellowship, various Islamic groups, Jewish groups, Catholic groups, and then the ACLU and another entity coming together on this issue. So John, final question for you. If, if the entities that are at, at each other's throat all the time, even like three, I, I think two months ago or so, ADF was arguing against one of the people who wrote an amicus brief with them. If they're unifying on this issue, why, 
<laughs> Why can't you unify with them? <laughs> Maybe I'm a contrarian at heart. I, I'm not sure. But I, I think to that point, um, this issue ultimately widens the court doors, makes it easier for these groups, any group, to get into the courtroom by taking what is, uh, a, you know, if I think it's an understatement to call it a technicality, it's not a technicality, it's part of the Constitution. Constitution says you got to have a controversy. And if you ask for something and you get it, you don't got a controversy. <laughs> and that's, that's really what it comes down to. And as much as I sympathize with these students, and I, God bless them, my goodness, they're doing God's work. They're out there evangelizing. They're, you know, I mean, they're street preaching at a university, which takes more gumption. I mean, talk about having to put on the armor of God to go into a dark place and speak the word. Like this, this Chike guy, he's got it, you know, and, and good for him. And I, and I want to encourage him, like, you know, goodness, if he's listening to this podcast, like, keep it up, brother. But, uh, I think in terms of the legal doctrine, although I'm on full support with the with the mission, um, the law here just, I don't think, favors the position. Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of torn um, myself on this issue. Of course, I'm not a lawyer. Um, so what do, what do I uh, have to say? Um, but... On the one hand, I, you know, I understand the the argument that these are live issues, like whether or not um, Georgia Gwinnett is doing it anymore. The fact is, re religious discrimination is happening on a daily basis, so it should be in our best interest as a nation for the Supreme Court to start kind of like laying down those laws. And saying, "Here's where that boundary is." Like that would make that makes perfect sense for me. But then also, you know, I understand the court is not in the position and does not want to give what they term advisory opinions. Uh, this is you know they want there to be actually some case in front of them. Um, they they're not giving just ideas. They're because then they're they're really moving from the being a judge in our system, which is someone who applies the laws, to having a say in writing and framing of those laws, having a say in, in, in writing and framing policy. And I don't want our, our, our Supreme Court to do that. And then there's a third point of formality that I that resonates with me. I think I brought this up last time, but um, we live in a very formal system. If a judge, a defense attorney, and a prosecutor all went to Chick-fil-A and they saw an armed robbery take place in front of them. The police arrived, apprehend the su subject. You know, they can't go out, find 12 people on the side of the road and, and hold a trial right there in the play place. That just is not how our system works. The fact is this guy is dead to rights when it comes to his defense because everyone saw him commit the crime. And it's just, it's just, undisputed he's going to jail but he still has every right to that formal event of a trial that formal 
accusation to have the police present evidence to prove beyond a shadow of doubt to a jury that this man did it. You know, obviously he'd probably want to take a plea deal, but that is that is our system. And as much as I want to agree with uh, Chike, I kind of sometimes wonder if this is not what Justice Scalia bemoaned as a silly case uh, arising from the 14th Amendment applying you know when we when we when we made substantive due process apply to all the states that uh, you know he would say that they had before substantive due process there was no case in front of Supreme Court whether you you had a, a nativity scene on government property whether that was a violation and could you have the nativity scene there if you had a menorah and a just it, it didn't happen because we realized from a nation that that was just probably better solved at a local level. Um, and that's kind of where I sit is this uneasy balance of, I totally agree with this case and I want the Supreme court to actually decide something, uh, for once. Um, <laughs> I'll put that out there. Uh, you know, there's so many times where I feel like they've been teed up to hit the ball and they missed it. Like, <sighs> but then there's the other side that says, but what about my rights as, a, as an individual citizen in a non-related case that has nothing to do, you know, with this? Can I be dragged through? I don't want to be dragged through the legal process all the way to the Supreme Court for years because my neighbor claims $1 damages. And they just, they just term them nominal damages. Wow, y'all are cold-hearted human beings. My goodness, this poor kid standing up for his rights, getting beaten down by school administration, almost getting arrested twice. And y'all are just like, well, one dollar ain't gonna do it. I mean, the humility of this kid to not do more damages than what he did. And y'all are gonna beat him over the head for it. No, I, I will say this. You know, what's great about this case, though, is that politics aside this is not just a clear case of these guys are bad and these guys are good when you start digging down into the issues it really is questions of you know how do we determine what mootness is how do we determine based off the case law and how we've interpreted case or controversy to mean and that's why lawyers do what lawyers do and they look at the law and the history and consider what how we make these arguments and, you know, headline wise, you can argue Supreme Court sided with X, Y, Z. But reality is when you start getting down into the nitty gritty, there is some really key issues and you go, huh, this maybe is not as clear as it could be. And I agree. There are some partisan issues that I believe the Supreme Court has made in decisions and that are problematic, hugely problematic. And I'd love to get politics out of the Supreme Court. Um, and a lot of the philosophies out of the Supreme Court, too, because a lot of them are bad. Um, but I think one thing that I, I, I will just leave with is that sometimes an issue isn't about who's bad or who's good on, on this position. The issue is whether or not the case law, the statute, the Constitution, the history is in your favor or it's not. 
And although this is a great case and the issue needs to be decided that uh, uh, free speech zones on college campuses are horribly unconstitutional and should be, you know, utterly kicked out of any concept of a school policy. Um, this just isn't the case potentially to do it. Now, I would make the argument that it is, and I'm going to disagree with my esteemed colleagues. Uh, but I think, you know, if it's not this case, it should be another case. And it just shows that not every case is a moral battle where if you vote against it, you're just a horrible human being. Um, that being said, John Gardner, take it away. If you ask for something and you get it, then it's done. That's what mootness is. That's what happened here. Thank you and good night. Thank you for listening to Armchair Justice. It's truly been a privilege to have you as a listener. Please subscribe or follow and leave us a review when you do. John Gardner and Mike Chetta are your co-hosts. The intro and exit music was Cats Searching for Truth by Nat Keith and Hot Butter Rum. I'm James Lavender, your host. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs>